Magazines and Monsters, Episode 7, EC Comics, Shock Suspense Stories. Billy D, a.k.a. Doc Strange here. And as you can see from the show notes, uh, this is a special episode because it's been in the uh, making for two years. (laughs) (laughs) Um, My special guest is none other than Mike from Comics in the Golden Age. How are you, buddy? I'm great, Billy. How are you doing? Oh, I'm fantastic. Yeah. So for, you know, anybody that's, you know, listening in, uh, we <laughs> actually recorded uh, this episode two years ago, which to my amazement, I thought it was only one year, but <laughs> it was actually two years ago. And the audio quality on my end was so horrible. I scrapped it because I just couldn't do it. And between starting other podcasts and just, you know, the world being uh, thrown into <laughs> insanity, one thing led to another. So it took us this long to get back on the horse here and uh, record some uh, EC comics, which I know you're a big fan of. And I became a big fan of, too, in the last few years, just because of how polarizing and jarring and just how ahead of their time they were, um, even though it was you know mostly a short window compared to all the other comic book companies. But uh, yeah, big time. Big time EC fan, and like I said, I know you are too, Mike. So uh, why don't you talk about your love for EC for a minute here? Oh gosh, I um, it's hard for me to pinpoint the time where I first started picking them up, but back in the late '80s, early '90s, somewhere around then, I had been, I'd grown up a superhero fan, pretty exclusively a superhero fan, and mm-hmm. then I would see like the reprints that Cochran was putting out, and out of curiosity, I started wanting sort of expand and get into other stuff so i started grabbing some of those periodically and i was just so taken by them and i wasn't just taken by the content but what you were alluding to earlier sort of how polarizing how significant they were i was taken by the history of them as well what they you know their significance in comic book history and the reaction in the 50s they caused and also they they were just nothing i'd seen before even at that time these comics are 40 years old but they were so different than what I had been used to that they mm-hmm. just grabbed me. And the mix of the art and the writing, it, it's hard. It's one of those things that until you start reading a bunch of them, it's really hard to understand. But I kind of I kind of think there's sort of three things going into an EC comic. You kind of have, you know, they're known for their shock endings. Their mm-hmm. Shock endings are a big part of it. Whether oh, it's yeah. horror, sci-fi, they do that. Another one is, there's a lot of social political commentary in them then, you know, which mm-hmm. particularly for the time period you're dealing with the 1950s, it's mm-hmm. kind of startling to read some of it now and think that they got this published back in 1953 or 1954. Yeah. And then, and we'll get to this a little later in, in one of the stories is there's a comedic element. There's actually some comedy and that kind of overlaps with the shock ending, mm-hmm. but not always. Some of the shock endings are more just horrifying or even grotesque. But there's also an element of them that there's some there's some humor to a lot of them too, and some of them are meant, you know, not like a rimshot kind of joke, but you know, they're they're quite clever or humorous in the way they resolve. So, it, it, given that they're dealing with war comics, horror comics, science fiction comics, that's an interesting thing to kind of pull off in that context. So, I've been a fan ever since, and I just love EC. It's one of my favorite branches of comic books, and I. I could talk about them forever, but I won't do that because we need to talk about other stories and stuff. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So I think the first time I actually heard anything about EC was, of course, you know, uh, Wortham and, you know, the hearings and all that kind of stuff. I think that's the first time I ever heard of them. And that's what got me to kind of investigate 
And if you just look at that kind of stuff and look at it from the outside, you just think, oh, it was just horror comics, you know, to shock people. But like you said, there is a lot of commentary in here about, you know, like you said, everything from, you know, social issues to, you know, there were a lot of their war stories were very anti-war, you know, showing the very ugly parts of war. And like, this is something that, you know, you should shy away from, you know, especially unless it's you know, absolutely necessary. And I, I really didn't see that from the beginning or hear about that. But when you dive into them, you see that it's on full display almost. I shouldn't say in every issue, but uh, quite a bit of them. Absolutely. And Harvey Kurtzman is really more than anyone responsible for that because he wrote and edited some, the bulk of them. And it was the first time, as you said, in comic books that war was really portrayed. So, well, I wouldn't say the very first time, but the first time consistently on going like that, that it was portrayed in, as ugly and dark. It's particularly five, six years after World War II, where it was just rah, rah, full of propaganda, you know, Captain America punching Hitler on the cover, Superman advertising war bonds, you know, all that stuff. And I'm not criticizing one way or the other, but it was just a very different mindset. In World War II, you know, that Justice Society had a story about a wounded, amputated veteran and, you know, the difficulties they had coming back into society. But it, it's, it wasn't on the level of the horrors that Kurtzman and them would allude to in their stories five or six years later with the Korean War. And even then, while EC was doing it, it took a while for a lot of the other companies to kind of catch up. And, but they didn't do it in necessarily an unpatriotic way. A lot of the times, Kurtzman's stories still delivered the message of what they were the u.s was doing was right and justified in the end and necessary but it just didn't shy away from the ugliness that you know would nevertheless happen in any context in a war zone yeah yeah they were to me they were very respectful of things but still showing you you know how like you said how ugly war really is and then even you know every once in a while kind of you know calling things into question like you know hey was this the right thing to do? Is was this really, you know, absolutely necessary? They they really they had some balls, man. EC they didn't care. They were gonna print what they wanted to print, man. That's what I love yeah. the best about them. I think. <laughs> yeah, that was a good and bad thing because that that the, having balls that's that's what got um, Bill Gaines in trouble when he went in front of the <laughs> Senate. Is sometimes too much balls. <laughs> Maybe a little more humility might have been a better approach <laughs> in that context, but I. I know he was at the, the end of his rope when he did that, but when I watched the video of him and sometimes in the Senate and testifying, I'm just thinking, oh, they probably could have been a better way to to deal with some of those congressmen. But not that at that point it probably would have mattered in the end anyways, but who knows. Yeah, yeah, like you said, I think he was at the end of his rope, and then he also felt like it was a done deal. He was just kind of there for you know a formality. But yeah, who knows? Maybe if he would have been a little more, you know, like uh, – nice about it maybe <laughs> maybe things would have been different but hey hey we got a ton of really good stuff from ec you know before okay. they kind of shut the door on them and we end up getting what 70 years of mad magazine as a result so you know yeah you yeah lose and then you win at the same time sometimes so yeah for real so yeah so what we're going to be talking about is a couple of uh three stories to be exact from shock suspense stories from 1952 um i think it's issues five and six um so the the one story that i'm going to cover first here is called undercover um and this is one that when you again you look just look at the cover and you're like holy crap from this uh, comic and it's obviously beautifully drawn because it's wally wood which you know 
he was one of the best to ever do it. But it's one of these stories where you, you read the story and it's it really shows an ugly side of people. And then there's a paragraph at the very end, you know, that really explains, you know, why they did this story. And like you said, it's it's a big time jab at, you know, a bigotry, basically, you know, trying oh, they're, yeah. tr- they're they're trying to just show you and tell you how ugly bigotry is. And it's like I said, it's a it's a horror like it's like a horror story. But it's not horror because of, you know, a monster. It's horror because, you know, human beings can be horrible, you know? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so, all right, I'll just do a little quick synopsis here, and then we can get into a little bit more. Okay, so the issue begins with some degenerate KKK members torturing a woman out in the sticks. Her crime, you ask? She apparently dated a black man. A a reporter witnesses this murder and intends on notifying the FBI. The Klan means to see him dead, but he gets away. They eventually catch up to him and beat him so bad he ends up in the hospital. He awakens hours later, and two men are in his room claiming to be from the FBI. He tells them that he saw the murder, but that they themselves end up being Klan members, and they shoot him. So, yeah, pretty wild story there, Um, but something that looks to be, you know, everybody knows is pretty true to, (laughs) especially back then, a lot of people's uh, definitely uh, thoughts and feelings, but maybe they came out and said it, and maybe they didn't, but yeah, so a pretty wild story. What do you think of this one? Well, it's funny you mentioned that his her crime was dating a black man, because that's what I took from it, too, but I was actually going to ask you what you took from it because i don't think they ever enunciated that bluntly in the story right they just sort of hinted that that's when they talked about who she was consorting with undesirable elements and stuff Mm -hmm. i don't think they ever actually said and correct me if i'm wrong that it was that she was either hanging i mean she may in this context the thing is in this world she may not even been dating you know i think she may have just she could have been talking to him in a friendly way in front of the grocery store and that would have been enough to anger these types in the city but that's the same impression i had exactly that that's what she was doing and then although like i said i didn't even necessarily think it was dating i think she was probably she could have just been seen being nice or helping one with a bag and that would have been enough to make these guys go over the top but this this type of story is EC's remembered for a lot of things, but I think one of the things that really kept him alive all these years and really kind of made such an impact on readers at a young age that they remembered it 40 or 50 years later, I think these were the types of stories, the ones that did comment on bigotry or something like that. You know, if it were like Master Race, the story about alluded to the Holocaust, you know, mm-hmm. the, the, the black astronaut, um, oh, Judgment yeah. Day, that was the name of the story, Judgment Day. Mm-hmm. This story, the woman and the man... You know, fighting the clan type people in the town, the bigots. These are the ones that really stick with you when you read an EC story. There's some shock value ones, some horror ones that do as well. But I think these are the ones that really kind of dig into your mind and, and make an impact with you even more than those. And also, like you said, it's drawn by Wally Wood. <laughs> you know, oh. he is one of the all time best. And this cover is one of the most iconic EC covers. I mean, if you pick up any book about EC, this is going to be one of the first ones you see, potentially even on the cover of that book, because this is one of the all-time most, you know, the woman there with the guys in the hoods and stuff. 
it's an extremely powerful, ominous image. And one thing you said that I totally agree with and jumped out at me is that it's not horror in the traditional monster, you know, I'm trying to think of a good word, but, you know, it's not Frankenstein horror. It's not zombie horror. It's not poltergeist horror. It's yeah. just normal people horror. It's just mm-hmm. normal, awful people doing terrible things. It's that kind of suspense that, to me, those things are far more frightening and impactful than seeing a monster or creature go after someone because they can happen to us in real life. And that's one of the reasons this story has always been one that I've really loved. Yeah, for sure. It's, it's, that's scarier. <laughs> real life is scarier than any monster, any EC artist could ever draw. But yeah, like I said, they have that last paragraph because the, the, the clan members, after they shoot, kill the guy, say, you know, oh, there's no witness, you know, now that he's dead. So we're safe. And then the little, uh, editorial box here says yes safe safe behind their masks of prejudice these hooded peddlers of racial religious and political hatred operate today mind you they are shrewd and ruthless men such as those in our story how long can we stay cool and indifferent to this threat to our democratic way of life it is time to unveil these usurpers of our constitutionally guaranteed freedoms and like i said that's you know that's everybody thinks ec horror and that's that's not you know you're not off base by saying that but Stuff like that is that's really what they were trying to drive home in the end, I think, more than, you know, hey, shock and horror. Yeah. One thing, too, is I want to mention this particular title, Shock Suspense Stories, is arguably, I think, their best title. And because I think it did have that variety and it had so many different types of stories. And I'm I've always been very I love their war stories. I love their science fiction stories. But one thing I like about this this title was the variety of it. You know, obviously mm-hmm. in the title, they all have, almost everyone has a shock ending. That's the whole point of the thing. Yeah. But they do it in the context of horror. They do it in the context of science fiction. They do it in the suspense realm, like the one we're, we're talking about now. So I think if you, if you sit down and you try an EC one, if you try this title, you're going to get a broader range of what the other EC titles offer. And I think, and it's frankly, it's got a lot of good stories in it. So. Oh, yeah. Like I said, this one I bought, it's, oh, it's incredible. Like it has the whole issues five and six from shock suspense stories and the other ones i've read were pretty good too but i think this is my one favorite by far i mean it has my favorite ec story in it of all time uh halloween hmm. uh by by my favorite artist uh ghastly graham ingles and that's <laughs> actually uh who the artist is on the the story you're going to talk about too he's he did that one too yeah i want to talk about ingles for a while but i'm going to hold off on that until after i do my story since he's the one who Who's the artist for that one? Mm-hmm. Yeah, for real. So, yeah, go ahead, man. Anytime you want to start up and we'll talk about uh, sugar and spice. <laughs> okay, I'm. this is going to be a little longer than yours. I'm sorry, but I'm kind That's of okay. a, an in, <laughs> in-depth guy on my, my writing, probably too much of my work. But anyways, so, yeah, this one is sugar and spice. And um, story opens with two young children, Johnny, who is about 10 or 11 years old, and his younger sister, Margie. They're playing catch when the ball bounces out of her hands and lands over a picket fence in an old woman's yard. The old woman watched through a window as Johnny tiptoed through a yard, trying to find the ball while his sister stayed on the lookout. Despite thinking how cute they were, the woman jumped out of her front door and asked Johnny what he was doing in her garden. He tried to explain, but she screamed at them and to never come into her yard again, and they ran away. She turned away and thought to herself how much spirit the two children have. She liked... She liked kids with spirit and picked up the ball. She offered to give it back if they returned to retrieve it, and Johnny started to walk towards her. 
But Margie was too frightened and fled down the street. Johnny went after his sister, so the old woman just threw the ball towards them and again screamed for them to stay out of her yard. She smiled to herself and thought that this is the way it's been since she moved into this old house. She'd been after the imps ever since the first day. The next day is Halloween and Johnny plans to get even with the old crab. After dark, the woman observes the children approach her front gate and watches as Johnny walks onto her porch and places a small milk bottle full of water in front of her door. He places it against the door in a way that it'll tip over if she opens it and spill into her foyer. He rings the doorbell and runs away, but she ignores the sound. The kids grow frustrated and decide to try tic-tac-toe, which is a game that involves placing a thumbtack on her door, which is tied to a long length of thread with a nut on it. Johnny then pulls the thread all the way back to the front gate, so when he let it go, it would bounce off the door. He did this repeatedly, but while most people would get angry, the old woman just smiled peacefully at the sound. Just as the children were about to give up and walk away, the old woman began moaning and crying for help. Worried that she might be sick or dying, the children approached her door, and Johnny removed the bottle he placed there. The children walked in to check on her, and the door immediately slammed shut behind them. When they tried to open it, the doorknob came off in Johnny's hand. He noticed a stickiness to the knob, and when they inspected it, they saw it was made of candy caramel. They then looked around and saw that everything was made of candy. There were candy cane chairs, chocolate tables, sponge sugar lamps, gingerbread walls. Then they saw that the old woman was standing near the oven door, open all the way. <laughs> she welcomed John and Margaret, also known as Hansel and Gretel. Looking at the audience, she explained, you see, John in German is Hans or Hansel. Margaret is Greta or Gretel. Did Hans or Gretel get away from me as they did in the original story, you ask? Come now, remember, this is an EC magazine. <laughs> so, wow. What did you think of that one, Billy? Oh, man, that is so good. Yeah, um, it's funny, too, because, you know, EC, you know, they set it up like, you know, in the beginning with, you know, the old lady. She's one minute, she's a little nicer. And the next minute, she's like, I get out of here. And they're like, you old crab and like calling her names <laughs> and stuff like that. But then, of course, it's like, you know, you you think, oh, but they really are good kids because when she <laughs> needs help, they go into the house and, you know, it's all just a ploy to get them to come in there and more than likely throw them in the oven and then eat them. <laughs> That's so awesome. I love it. <laughs> yeah, I like that they dug back in a fairy tale and used this and it's sort of like the old woman's revenge. And they also broke the fourth wall, which was something they did quite often in, in EC stories at some point, particularly in the big reveal of the end, which mm -hmm. I always thought should take me out of it and ruin the story, but somehow it didn't. Mm -hmm. And and it kind of gets back to what I said about a lot of them having a comedic element. That, yeah. You know, as gruesome as this is, that she's about to cook and eat these two kids. There's <laughs> clearly like, you know, a tongue in cheekness to it that you could uh, you could appreciate. So I like that. Yeah. And that's going to happen in the last one we're going to talk about, too. But, yeah. Oh, how about that last panel there? Oh, like, yeah. Man, Graham Ingalls. Whoa. Wow. What an artist. Oh, that the, the old witch there looks like so scary. Yeah, that's what I wanted to I wanted to talk about Graham Angles for a minute because mm. he's an artist and you're going to hate me for this. When I first started reading EC back in my late teens, early 20s period, I didn't care for his art that much. Cuz it was just so different than like the clean line of superhero books I'd read and stuff. And I still found the stories engrossing, but I just kind of looked at his art as oh, it's very muddy and dark. But then as the years went on, he's one of those people that I just gradually found myself realizing how good he was and how perfect his art was and how the grotesqueness to how he drew like these characters like the witch and stuff 
and even like the faces of Johnny and, and little Margie change during their kind of, well, not really Margie, but Johnny during different scenes of going, you know, being concerned about her than being afraid in his life for his life. And earlier he was wanting to play pranks on her. There's just a lot of emotion in his characters and they can turn on a dime. And so now I'm a huge fan of Graham Ingalls and I just love the guy, but it was one of those things that it took me a few years to kind of come around and learn to appreciate him. Does that make sense? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's, I've been that way with some artists, like even Kirby, when I was young and saw his art, I was like, well, it's okay. And now I'm thinking to myself, were you nuts? He, like, he's like, <laughs> he's like one of the greatest ever, but sometimes styles do really, uh, you know, take a little while to grow on you, especially as you know, you read more comics and you just, I don't know, I guess even say mature in a certain way as a reader and stuff like that. But yeah, it's, that's a good example too. You know, Graham Ingalls, like I've looked at it and always thought it was pretty good, but now I just think it's out of this world. I just, oh, to me, he's my favorite of all the EC artists and they had how many good artists and they all did a great job. But to me, he's my favorite mostly because his stories just, every time he drew a horror story, it usually was, you know, a horror story about oh, something yeah. horrible and it just, you knew something sinister and terrible was going to happen. <laughs> when it came to horror, he was their master. He was the no one could do horror like Graham Ingalls. It was his gift. And it's I, I've posted him a few times on my on my Twitter account. So if anyone who's listening happens to follow, hopefully you've seen them. But later in life, he did some commissions where he would paint the old witches. Mm. And they are just incredibly, well, I was about to say beautiful. I mean, they're the ugly old witches of EC Comics. Yeah. So they're horrific looking, but they're mm -hmm. beautifully horrific looking. These things are just masterful in the way he paints them and they're just the best example of how amazingly good this guy was and yeah, one thing was. yeah i also want to mention that when we recorded first time i was reviewing the story again in a colored reprint mm -hmm. this time i've since purchased one of the fanographics ec artist collections they're doing and this particular one is called sucker bait by graham Ingalls that contains this stories this story and it's all black and white and it, i'm so glad i got to read it for this again in black and white because there's something about the ec comics in particular and we've talked about this outside the show that in black and white just works really well in most instances not all but in the vast majority particularly the horror it really works well and it's very complimentary to the artist yeah for sure i i just oh i would love to get that book too i know Fanographics does such a great job with pretty much everything they always do. But man, if you, they usually don't do really huge print runs. And if you miss out, well, man, when they go out of print, good luck. <laughs> You're so right. I'm kicking myself because I got a late start to those. Yeah. And I'm trying to catch up, but there's already two or three that are out of print that are out of my typical price range that I'm going to have to like save up for, ask for, for a gift on a holiday because I can't afford them. But I'm trying. And, and, they're, and they do a very good job of separating because they're not just doing, oh, I'm going to reprint issue five of this series, six of this series. They're artist oriented. So they and they're not all that are artists. They'll say this artist and some other stories. Mm -hmm. And they have topical themes, which is very nice. So they curate them very well. And there's a few that are just excellent. Like I had recently bought the um, one of the Harvey Kurtzman collections, mm -hmm. which is just superb. And they're very good at that. And this Graham Ingalls one is another one. And it's a really good collection of mostly his stories. And, oh, you do have to pick it up. You would love it. Yeah. It's right I, up your I, alley. 
I do just I do just because like you said of the black and white because I just think horror yeah like we said it's just there's something about horror in black and white and um, anthology format too I think works really well for horror and then you throw in the black and white as well it's just oh that's just a combination you can't beat but yeah I got to get on the stick here because like <laughs> I said if you miss out on those they're probably double at least if not triple the price uh, when they go out of print crazy oh, yeah. So crazy, but yeah, two good ones there. And then, okay, so we're going to take a quick break here and then uh, we'll come back and uh, get into the last story and then uh, a few other odds and ends. So uh, we'll be right back. Okay, everybody, we're back. So we're going to talk about this last one, Mike, uh, Cold Cuts. And I forgot to mention all three of these stories are – Bill Gaines and uh, Al Feldstein uh, plot and story, you know, script. And then that first story, like we said, the, uh, the artwork was uh, Wally Wood. And then uh, with your story, that one was Ghastly Graham Ingalls, my favorite. And then uh, this last one, it's uh, my podcasting partner, Herman's uh, favorite uh, EC artist. And one of his, I think he's on his Mount Rushmore favorite artist of all time wow. is Jack, Jack Davis. <laughs> Well, he is pretty uh, I'll save it for later. Go on. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think the first couple of stories of his I saw were the war comics that EC did. I think I were Jack Davis, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, and I was very impressed with that because, you know, as you know, there were certain artists that excelled at war. You know, Sam Glansman, Joe Kubert, Russ Heath. But uh, it's not easy to draw. Not for sure. You know, different, you know, you know, in naval and airplanes and naval ships and military and weapons and all that stuff. That is not easy to draw. But Jack Davis, he pulled it off big time. Yeah. And Jack Davis, he was probably the most successful of the EC artists because he didn't just have, you know, great comic work out there. Great Mad Magazine work. But he did TV guides. He did, you know, movie posters. He did album covers he did time magazine covers he was all over the place in different forms of media and just so gifted it it's i can't think of any other i'm sure there are and i'll remember them when we get off but i can't think of any other comic someone who started in comics who had i mean even frank frazetta was a beautiful fantasy painter but someone who covered so many things you know as jack davis did during his life it was amazing yeah, he's a really great artist, and this story is <laughs> is pretty good, too. So, all right, we'll just get right into this one. So, the opening scene shows a man who has just murdered his wife, Helen. Victor and his wife are selling their home, and the real estate agent is bringing some prospective buyers by in 30 minutes. He decides to chop her body into pieces <laughs> and store them in the freezer. I shouldn't be laughing. <laughs> wow, right? He quickly cleans up just in time. The real estate agent shows the apartment to a couple, and they agree to take it. Victor is about to take the body parts and dispose of them, but his boss calls him and tells him he needs to travel out of town for a couple of days. The real estate agent tells him not to worry, that he'll take care of everything until he gets back. Two days pass, and Victor returns, but has to stop at the real estate agent's house because he gave him the key to the apartment. The agent invites him in for some dinner. 
and they eat. <laughs> they eat, and Charlie tells Victor the butcher was closed, so he borrowed the meat from his freezer. <laughs> oh, oh gosh, so disgusting. So, what do you think of this one? <laughs> oh, I love it, but oh, I don't. I like even if I not that I can envision committing a murder, but let's say for a moment I did. If I was on the verge of being caught, I just can't imagine my brain would be like, oh. Wait, let me chop up all the pieces and put it in the freezer mm. to keep myself from getting in trouble. And that ending, this is what Dr. Wortham was annoyed at. This is a perfect mm-hmm. example of what Dr. Wortham was horrified of kids reading. And it's it's awesome. <laughs> it's ridiculous. It's absurd. It's disgusting and it's gruesome. But it's also pretty funny, you know. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, like we talked earlier about some of these endings where it's just like a horror ending, but then some of the endings are like a dark comedy and there's a little bit of humor. You know, the the very last panel when Victor finds out he's basically eating the meat from his dead wife's <laughs> bones, he has a look on his face and it just says choke. And it, the, the wife says, what's wrong, Vic? You look sick. And he does. He looks like he's ready to throw up. <laughs> and you know it's telegraphed in a way i mean i'm sure the first time i read this and he said freezer i kind of suspected where it was going but that doesn't take away from the beauty of that last panel at all oh no not at all and i mean like you're saying some of the panels in this oh jack davis what a master so the very first page you know you have victor leering over his dead wife it looks like he probably strangled her and then the phone rings and he spins around and says, who the blazes can that be? And his tie is like flipping around to show the motion of him turning around quickly. And, the, you know, the shadow of his hand. Oh, it just looks incredible. Below that, there's, you know, him on the telephone. It's a black background and his face is all yellow. It's sweat dripping off his face. Like, oh, it looks incredible. I can't just, oh, I could look at this, this story for days visually. It's an incredible story. And one of the things I love about it is so many of the stories are about a crime about the, what causes the crime, the crime being committed, you know, the buildup and the suspense to what could happen at the end of the story. But this one opens, the murder's already happened. He's already killed his wife. That's almost incidental to what the actual story is about. That's not even something we care or need to know the details other than that this guy in the first panel, his wife is already dead. Mm-hmm. And that, I just thought that was a really interesting approach to take from a story where they drop us in and the murders already occurred and everything else afterwards is the story. Oh, yeah. And then and him dragging her and putting her into the tub. And, you know, Jack Davis draws, you know, this <laughs> this bathroom little scene here. You can see the shower and the fixtures and then the sink. And then you can see there's a little soap dish with some pink soap in the soap dish oh. as he's putting her body into the tub and then runs into the kitchen and gets this humongous knife and you never see him cut her up, but he grabs the knife and he runs back into the bathroom and you you see her hair there and he's like reaching out for her head. It's like, Oh man, that's so bad. It's a great example of sometimes it's like jaws. It's like sometimes what the sensors are practical effects will keep you from seeing just, it's better to not see it. It's better to see the hints of what's going on than to actually see what is occurring. It's more suspenseful and horrifying just to see him holding the tools or holding her hair than almost actually seeing the gruesome act occurred because you know exactly what's going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then the tension of him trying to clean up in time before the real estate agent comes over with this couple and he's scrubbing the floor and he says, yeah. "It's don't, don't take a sigh of relief yet. Clean up <laughs> the bathroom. The bloody knife 
the stained tub and spattered wall, the sticky floor. <laughs> oh, man, that's so bad. <laughs> One thing about Jack Davis, too, is he was extremely detailed. Mm-hmm. But he wasn't detailed. Like some artists throw in tremendous details to kind of cover up for the weakness of their the storytelling or their other weaknesses in art. But he wasn't like that. He was a tremendous storyteller and a tremendous artist. But he did have a ton of detail in his work. And it was beautiful detail. In this case, sometimes gruesome detail, but mm-hmm. still beautiful detail. Mm, yeah. And then, uh, you know, the, the couple's looking around the apartment and the woman. Oh, you have a frozen food locker. How convenient. <laughs> and she opens it and looks in and he's like really sweating. You're like, oh, no. <laughs> oh, yeah. The way he draws that guy's face, facial expressions changing throughout the story is just awesome. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah. It's just and then, you know, the the real estate agent, he's just so helpful to try to push along, you know, the the narrative <laughs> of, you know, how am I going to get away with this? Am I going to get away with this? You know, he just, the, the real estate agent just be, oh yeah, I'll do everything for you, buddy. I'm thinking, yeah, not in this day and age, pal. Like <laughs> maybe back in the fifties, but not now. I don't think any real estate agent's going to go through all those hoops. <laughs> I love the innocent expression on the guy at the end too, where he's like, well, you know, I just didn't have time to pick up some meat. So I used some of yours and he's got this very happy, you know, big smile, innocent <laughs> face. Like, I used my meats in the freezer. Glad you like it. Oh, man. And then what happened after that last panel? That's what I want to know. <laughs> did, did Vic just vomit and run out of the apartment? Did he or... keep it together or did he go ballistic <laughs> and go insane and tell everyone what happened? Yeah. Oh, yeah. You, you can only wonder. But, man, with DC, I think we know it was probably something crazy. But... <laughs> <laughs> wow. So, yeah, that's definitely. So, if you. What what is your favorite EC story of all time? Do you have one of yours that's just a favorite that you could talk about that you could say, "Yep, this is it. This is my favorite." Oh, that is a very hard question. Oh my god, that is a hard question. Are you more the war guy, the horror guy, or just these suspense stories? Do you have uh, one of the genres that you like better than the sci-fi? Other? At the end of the day, I could read their sci-fi stories more than anything. Okay. And okay. there's there's two that jump out at me. I, I'm going to waffle. I'm sorry. I've got to go with two. Okay. And one I'm sure you're familiar with because it's one of the big ones. It's Judgment Day. I just always. Oh, yeah. Day to be very powerful. Plus the art throughout the story is just tremendous. Very futuristic. The the robots, the aliens. It's wonderful. And that for anyone listening who's not familiar with that's the one. Well, should I spoil it or should I not spoil it? Oh, yeah, yeah. That's definitely something you should talk about. Yeah, that's a, that's yeah. a huge. That was a landmark for sure. That is where. And an alien race is visited by an astronaut representing some sort of galactic federation. I can't remember the exact name. Mm -hmm. And he's trying to decide whether they're worthy of being included in the galactic organization. And as they take him around, he discovers that there's like a lower race. There's another race of the individuals who are treated as lesser. And the representative of the planet tries to explain that, well, yeah, they're not like us. They're, you know. They're, you know, we we treat them well, we, you know, do the best we can, but, you know, we have to take care of them, too, because they're just not, you know, they need our supervision and stuff. And he basically realizes they're bigots. So he tells them, you know, you're not ready to join us yet. You need to outgrow this sort of thing. You need to, you know, grow as a species. And someday you he said and he was kind. He said, we've all been there. Someday you'll grow and you'll be better and you'll be able to join us out in space. And he leaves. And as he leaves the planet. In the final panel, he takes off his helmet, and he's a black man from Earth. Mm-hmm. And it's just one of those things that nowadays, I don't know how many people can grasp 
what a big deal that was in probably 1953 or 54. I can't remember exactly when it came out. Yeah. For EC Comics to the point where even back then it was reprinted once or twice and the coloring was changed. Yep. And so it was controversial even then. And that's just and it's my favorite for a couple reasons. I think it's actually a very well told story. Mm-hmm. And um, it's calm about it. It's quiet. It, it is a bit preachy, but it's not in your face preachy. It's just he very calmly explains you guys aren't ready. This is why anyone reading it then would have said, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. But then you get this kind of gut punch when he takes us his helmet, because I got to think there were probably some kids in the South reading that, you know, white kids from Georgia, Louisiana in 1953 who got to that panel. And it was kind of like, whoa, you know, and some of them may have gotten angry. Some may have actually had an impact, but it had to be something of a gut punch. So that's one of my favorites. Mm-hmm. And another one is um, this is a smaller story. I don't know if you've heard of this one or not. But it's, uh, I can't remember the name of it, but I love it. I just read it yesterday, so I should be able to na- remember the name. But it's another Wally Wood story. Mm. And it's three astronauts are on a voyage in space. And one of them is missing his girlfriend. And then they realize after a little bit from some readings on their sensors that she stowed away. She's on the ship. She just couldn't be away from him. Mm-hmm. She was going to miss him, and she just wanted to go along with the voyage. And he gets really sad and frustrated, and she doesn't understand why. And she explains after, or he explains finally that you don't understand, dear. This ship, the fuel we have, is calculated to the precise second, the precise weight of everyone aboard. If it's not the three of us, as we are now, any any variance, we cannot complete our flight. We're all going to die. Mm. And he said if if all four of us stand someone has to leave the ship or everyone's going to die but the problem is that he can't leave because he's he has some i can't remember the details but he has some kind of knowledge and he's needed for the ship to be on there or they're they're also going to die and there's reasons for each of the men have to be there they can't go so basically she stowed away to be with her and she realizes and he and everyone realizes that she has to die on the ship so wow. they have to basically, you know, eject her or everyone on the ship. So she stowed away to be with him, but instead she ends up dying and he has to sacrifice her. And he doesn't want to, obviously. He loves her, but it's not just for her. It's for the other guys. He realizes that if they don't do this, these other two people are going to suffer as well. And she agrees to it. But it's just one of those stories where it's just like, holy crap, this is, you know, I kind of it was it stands out because it's actually, if I remember right, one of the first DC stories I read and I read it and I was like, oh, wow, that's you know, deep. And I remember back when I was um, first probably five or six years ago, downloading a lot of radio shows on my iPhone mm-hmm. and listening to them on commutes to work and stuff, alternating with podcasts. And there was one sci-fi radio show from the early fifties. And I was listening to it. And after a few minutes, I realized this is the same story. This is the exact same story I read in EC comics. And that's <laughs> one of the ways I first learned that, these stories used to be recycled and adapted and stuff by even the same writers sometimes way back in the fifties and stuff. And it was a fun, you know, radio show to listen to, but the exact same thing happened on that that happened in the EC comic, which is another reason that one always kind of stands out in my mind is cool. Yeah. I don't know if I've ever read that one. I only, out of all the EC that I've read, the sci-fi is probably the least amount of stories I have read. Um, 
I think I might only have one or two reprints of the sci-fi. Everything else is just, you know, horror, the, the shock suspense, and then some war. I might even have a couple of crime books, too. So maybe crime is the least, but sci-fi, I think, is probably the least. But, well, yeah, you figure, you know, like I said, Wally Wood, and then I think Al Williamson did some sci-fi, too, did he not? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah what a gr- great artist he was, too. My goodness. Well, he was, I mean, I mean he was a great EC artist, but, yeah, he he was... In fantasy and science fiction in general, he's one of the greats of all time. Yeah, I can always think of that one image. What is it, a Flash Gordon? Where it's oh, like, yeah. Oh, my gosh, that is so incredible. That is. He's got two or three Flash Gordon, but there is that particular one I know you're talking about that's just stunning. Mm, yeah, what a master that guy was. So, All right, man. Well, good talking some EC with you, buddy, here. So <laughs> before we get out of here, so why don't we talk about your show, too, your comics in the Golden Age podcast. Your last episode I listened to was a good one. It had uh, Tim Price on. What was that one all about? Oh, that was a really interesting because Tim has become kind of my go-to guy for covering um, kind of obscure superheroines of the Golden Age. So we covered this character named um, Undercover Girl. Her real name is Star Flag, but her title is sort of Undercover Girl. She's a secret agent. That was a lot of fun to do. He's um, he's always great for those type of characters. So I enjoyed that. We, you know, I try to do a broad range of Golden Age stuff and not just cover what people would expect, like you know, Captain Marvel or Superman or EC Comics or the Spirit, but to try to get to some of the more obscure characters that have been forgotten, but, you know, particularly ones that have a good pedigree, because this is one who was created by, like, Gardner Fox and Agna Whitney, so she's got some uh, stellar creators involved in her stories, so that was a fun one to cover. Oh, yeah, that was a blast. I really enjoyed that episode because, you know, it's an education for me, too, because I haven't ever heard of a lot of those Golden Age characters, so when you have a good... uh guest on like tim who was a blast um and talking about something i've never even heard before and just finding out about it was a lot of fun and like it's it's not like a really strong character too you know real strong female character for you know the golden age which is awesome yeah she was they they kind of veered away from characters like that in the 50s for a while so she was sort of one of the last ones to come along mm-hmm. like that where um she was a really strong independent it took a while for them to kind of come back into comics after that but she does. She, I think she's a character had a lot of potential, and, and I enjoyed it. Yeah, that was really cool. Great episode and great material. I'm going to have to try to... Is that something that you can find digitally? Do you know? Yes. There's two websites for anyone who's interested in kind of... Whether they listen to the show and find a Golden Age story they want to read, or they're just interested in Golden Age material, but they don't necessarily have the money for a lot of the reprints, the original issues. There are two websites. One is comicbookplus.com, and the other is the Digital Comics Museum. Both of them are for downloading public domain books, so they're entirely legal. You don't have to worry about, you know, pirating things. This is stuff that's in the public domain, and they're there digitally for you to either just read on the website or to download onto a device you have, and there are tens of thousands of comics on those websites from you know you're not going to find superman or you know captain america because they're not public domain but you are going to find a lot of characters you'll you know quality comics plastic man freedom fighters a lot of those stories are public domain from the 40s now you know captain marvel and shazam family a lot of those are you know not all there's kind of a 50 50 situation some of them are not public domain but a lot of them are and they're on those websites to to read legally and there's also all sorts of genres, you know, sci-fi, fantasy, 
you know, crime, superhero, horror, romance, you know, teen humor, all of they've it's got it all. So yeah, if you ever just want to do a deep dive for free of Golden Age comics, again, comicbookplus.com and Digital Comics Museum, they've got a ton of stuff. Yeah, I'll have to check that out. I heard of the Digital Comics Museum. I've, I think I've been to that website before, but uh, the Comic Book Plus, I had never been to that one, so I'm going to have to check that out. But, yeah, thanks for recommending those for sure because, like I said, hey, even if you'd rather print, but like you said, sometimes the print stuff can get expensive. I know there is that one company, Herman and I have talked about that before, that they reprint some stuff in trade format, sometimes black and white, sometimes color, where you can sometimes get a trade for 15 or 20 bucks, but you know hey free right on your device at home is uh the best way to go i think yeah definitely all right mike so i definitely want everybody to follow you on twitter you're an awesome follow you know <laughs> you and i and a couple of the other uh the crew we have a daily uh back and forth and have a good time and talking comics and movies and all sorts of shenanigans apes everything under the sun <laughs> lots uh, of, lots of <laughs> yeah for sure so um where are you at on twitter it is at Comics in the GA, you know, stands for Comics in the Golden Age, but at Comics in the GA is where you can find me. And then you have a site just for your podcast as well, don't you? Um, yes, but honestly, I don't use it that much. So okay. I, well, I mean, even if you just Google search Comics in the yeah, Golden Age podcast, Golden you'll come Age. right up. Yeah, ComicsInTheGoldenAge.com. But I guess more I'd want to emphasize that if you do want to listen, I would go to stitcher or podomatic or apple itunes or any of the major ones spotify it's on spotify now there yeah. just i don't really the pod the website really just has the downloads themselves it doesn't have any other real material there mm -hmm. so you just assume to just go somewhere where you can whatever you prefer to get your podcast from would probably be the best place yeah definitely subscribe because i know one of the first episodes i listened to um i really loved i think it was you and I can't remember who the other person was, but you talked about uh, the, some old uh, Golden Age Sandman, and I love that. Oh, yeah. That was my, my former co-host, who is my cousin, Chris. Was oh, yes. The first couple years, and then he had to depart the show. And he may return someday. We've, you know, a few times he's almost come back, but stuff has come up. But um, the last two years, it's either been just me or a, co or a um, guest or co-host. I've actually been lucky enough the last few years to have some interview episodes with some writers and authors on it, which has been fun. But um, that was Chris, definitely my first co-host. Yeah, because I enjoy, I think I bought a hardcover a few years ago. It was uh, Simon and Kirby, Sandman. And, uh, oh, I loved it. It was, those are some crazy, crazy stories. <laughs> yeah, Sandman is definitely at the top of my list of Golden Age characters. Both the gas mask version, uh, the pulp, pulp-oriented version of the character and the Simon and Kirby version later on. Yeah, for sure. And then, yeah, speaking of interviews, you had a good uh, interview with our uh, our good buddy uh, Jennifer DeRoss. You know, she wrote that great Gardner Fox uh, biography. It was so much fun meeting her finally. Like, I mean, not that I've, I've met her online plenty of times. I've known her for years on Twitter, but it was so much fun to finally actually get to sit down and talk with her for a while. That was definitely one of my favorite moments of podcasting. Yeah, she's she's a she's a good person there for sure, Jennifer. Man, she's a good follow on there too. Uh, but oh, yeah, she is extremely knowledgeable. She is just dripping with yes. co comic book knowledge, particularly in the golden age. And I I'm sometimes just left you know stunned at some of the stuff, the minutia, and the you know stuff that is not necessarily common knowledge behind the scenes stuff she's learned in her research over the years, particularly working on the Gardner Fox biography. 
it is incredibly impressive. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, Forgotten All-Star is the name of that book that she uh, wrote. So, yeah, definitely check that out, too. So, all right, my friend. Well, at this point, I'm going to uh, thank you once again for coming on. And then uh, we're going to get out of here, and then I'll be back on to wrap things up. So thank you again, Mike. I really appreciate you being on, buddy. Thank you very much, Billy. I'm, I'm really happy to be back and talking to you. Thank you. All right, man. Thanks. All right, everybody, that's it for episode number seven. Uh, once again, want to say thanks to Mike for coming on. Great guest and great guy. Um, talking some EC. Hopefully he'll be able to come back and talk some more EC, maybe some war, some crime, uh, and then, of course, some horror as well. Um, I'm going to insert a little five-minute uh, clip here at the end of the show um, about some of the EC artists. You know, we got a lot of Al Feldstein talking, who was one of the writers, and then uh, you get some... Uh, also, some clips from guys like Bernie Wrightson in there and Mark Evanier talking about EC's artists and uh, just how impactful they were on the industry uh, and just how great they were and professional. So definitely uh, listen in for that. So uh, thanks for listening in, everybody. I'll be back in a couple weeks with another episode. See ya. EC's stable of artists included some of the most talented men ever to work in the field. Gaines gave them top billing, allowing them to sign their pages and even publishing their biographies inside the front cover. More importantly, he gave them creative freedom. Early on, I, I said to Bill, you know, most comic books have a kind of a sameness to them. I said, what we've got to do is encourage our artists to write in their own handwriting not to imitate, but to each have their own style. The styles ran the gamut from squeaky clean to gothically grotesque. Into the latter category fell Graham Ingalls. A painter by training, Ingalls developed a special knack for horror, which earned him the nickname Ghastly. Graham Ingalls was the greatest guy at drawing walking dead, pieces of flesh falling from bodies, uh, he had this way of getting a texture on the, on the people he was drawing that no one else ever got with this rotten comic book reproduction. Somehow you just felt things oozing out of pores when he drew things. Graham Ingalls had this way of, of drawing people and he made them look like melting wax. There was a feeling of decay about his drawings that, that was just so, so appealing in a very kind of under the skin way. I remember looking at his drawings when I was a kid and imagining I could smell it. At the opposite end of the terror spectrum was Jack Kamen. Jack Kamen was an illustrator, a very straight kind of illustrator, and he did very pretty girls. Everybody was nice and handsome. I called him the father knows best artist. Kamen's style was best suited for EC's crime stories, which typically involved love triangles. EC often borrowed plot elements from James M. Kane, whose novels Double Indemnity and The Postman Always Rings Twice were made into very successful movies. Fix everything for us. What? Pray for something to happen to Nick? Something like that. Both Postman and Double Indemnity featured a gorgeous wife who plotted with her boyfriend to kill her husband. 
Cayman stories usually included both of these elements. I'm going to kill her, Jean, just like you want. I've made up my mind. It's the only way, darling. The only way. I knew you'd finally see it. Of course, in E.C.'s world, as in Kane's, the wife and boyfriend would usually get it themselves in the end. Somewhere in between the styles of Ingalls and Cayman fell E.C.'s other main artists, Johnny Craig and Jack Davis. Craig, the senior member of the staff, was one of the few artists who also wrote his stories. He became the man behind the Vault Keeper, illustrating all of the covers for the Vault of Horror. Johnny Craig's characters had these severe perspiration problems whenever anything bad happened around them. And you could kind of feel that through the page. You, you almost felt the page would get damp from all that sweat dripping on it. Unlike Feldstein and Gaines, who often poured on the gore, Craig focused on the terrors of the mind, the psychological aspects of horror. Considered EC's most popular artist, Jack Davis specialized in physical horror. But Davis, who would later become a highly successful humorist and commercial artist, also had an inherent comic style. He imparted a light touch on even the most horrifying scene. I love to draw cartoons, and I, I'm not an illustrator. I think sometimes your illustrators draw just, uh, you know, the stark thing right there. But, but if I see something, I'll put a, a cartoon movement on it, uh, an action movement that, uh, that I would put on a cartoon and exaggerate maybe the hands and the feet and the expression, you know, and really go at it. That guy just makes me laugh. Uh, even when he's drawing the, a gross out, he just makes me laugh. There's just something about Jack Davis's stuff that, that really uh, blows me away. Probably all of the artists who drew for EC did their best work of their careers during that short time that they were at EC. And that was no accident. That was because Bill found out what they liked to do, and they built the stories around that. 